Thank you. Good morning. And first of all, congratulations for setting your clocks ahead. Good job. Well done. I'm Pastor Bruce. Welcome, everybody, to worship this morning and online. Welcome. Glad you're with us today as we celebrate our wonderful Lord and Savior, and also we have a special baptism today. So what a great day to worship the Lord as we know the Holy Spirit's at work, and God is so gracious and wonderful, and we just look forward to experiencing the living presence of God, not just now, but every day of our lives. So it's wonderful to be here in the house of the Lord. And I'm glad we've come together. And I know as others come in, make sure they feel right at home. With that, we'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for this great day to worship you. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit's presence in our lives and the truth of your word. For the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, Lord God, setting us free to be loved and to love you and to love one another. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit's touching our lives, transforming us into the image that you intend for us to have, to be your holy people. We thank you, God, for the word that is truth. And we thank you that as the sermon will approach you eventually here, Lord God, we want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate your work in us and through us, that the world can receive and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. And thank you for little Charles being here and his family today. Glad that everybody's healthy and ready to go. We look forward to celebrating your covenant of love with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing. Let's worship the Lord. Let's all stand up. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. All right. God is a consuming fire. Here we go. Our God is a consuming fire, a burning holy flame with glory and freedom. Our God is the only righteous judge, ruling over us with kindness and wisdom. We will keep our eyes on you. We will keep our eyes. Fortress. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we are here today to exalt you, to enjoy you. Father, your presence is sweetness to our soul. And we just pray, Father, that today we would honor you and give you all the glory. Thank you, Father, that you are, uh, have given us this wonderful promise. Your word is just full of your truth, and it's full of the wonderful things to come. And we're so grateful that you've promised us a home eternal with you. And thank you, Jesus, for all you've done, for dying on our sins, dying for our sins on the cross, and coming to life. Thank you so much, Lord, for your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. This next song is a new one. Uh, I'm teaching it to you this, song, this Sunday, so when we sing it on Easter, it'll be familiar to your ears. It's called Hymn of Heaven. Here we go. How I long to breathe the air of heaven Where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets To look upon the one who bled to save me And walk with him for all eternity Thank you. 
Heavenly Father, we've just sung how holy you are, and you are holy, almighty God. And before you, Lord God, as sinners, we can't begin to imagine that we can stand before you apart from Jesus Christ, who alone, Lord God, puts us right with you. You declare we are righteous because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And so, Lord, we come humbly and gratefully before your throne in our prayers, in our lives, in our worship in our relationships, especially with you. Lord God, we owe you everything. Thank you that while we're accountable to you, Christ counted our sins to be placed upon him on the cross and not left on us. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is working within us to be your holy people, to do greater things than we could ever imagine. And so, God, we come to you and we give you thanks for miracles. We give you thanks for lives saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for who we are in Christ and for the wonders that you reveal to us in your word and in our own hearts. We thank you so very much for who we are in Christ Jesus today that we can really worship you and love you in return and each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'd like to invite uh, Dennis to come on up now. Dennis Turry is a retired RCC um, Reformation Covenant Church pastor. It was the church just down the hill from the swimming pool here in Oregon City. And um, we're going to invite everybody in his family or anybody that would like to come on up forward to to join with him. We're going to have a baptism of his grandson here shortly. How cool is that, right? So a pretty special day. Some of you know that we've been trying to get this done for uh, several months. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mentioned earlier that Chuck and Charity have kind of almost went bankrupt buying new outfits for Charlie as he grew <laughs> in preparation for the baptism. <laughs> I wanted to make two very brief points about baptism. Um, you know, and the first is that it's kind of complicated. In the book of Hebrews, uh, in the ninth chapter, the author of that book says that all the ordinances of the Old Testament consisted of two types, food and drink and washings. And obviously, to us, that means they all boil down to washings, baptism, food and drink, the Lord's Supper. So the two sacraments of the Christian church really are the distillation and can be understood fully with reference to all the washings and food and drink ordinances of the Old Testament. So there's complexity to baptism. It sums up an awful lot of truths, as it is, of course, the covenant sign of entrance into the covenant household of God. And yet it's also very simple. Uh, Paul, in the book of Romans, 
in chapter 6 basically informs us that baptism simply results in the union of the one being baptized with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says if you've been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his death, you've been baptized into his resurrection because you're in union with Christ. And also we would say you're baptized and become united with him in his ascension so Paul could write to the baptized in Ephesus that their citizenship is in heaven. So this is a simple rite, and when we baptize Charlie, we do many things, but primarily what we're doing is an event that results in this union with the Lord Jesus Christ, so that's what Christian baptism is. I guess I'll continue to use it, that's okay. So, uh, Chuck and Charity, uh, do you, in bringing your child for baptism, confess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and commit yourselves to raising your son in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Praise God. Now, this isn't required in baptism, but what I usually do, and many churches do, is to have the parents turn the child over to the officiant. And that's a good thing to do today because... I'm not representing the family in this. Baptism is an ecclesiastical, a church event, union with Christ, union with his people. And this handing off is a visual way for the parents to remember they're saying, we can't raise the son apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And to recognize that Charlie's well-being is found in the church of Christ. And so at that point, the officiant represents Christ. And so that's what we're going to do here. Hunter, I wonder if you could stand on this side of me, if you don't mind. I'm going to ask you to uh, hold these notes while I do a few things, okay? Actually, here, hold this too. <laughs> you want to take the child? <laughs> what is the Christian name of this child? Charles Dennis Wright. Charles Dennis Wright. I baptize you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. May the blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit come upon you and stay upon you now and forevermore. Okay. Thank you. This child is now received into Christ's kingdom, and you, the people of this congregation, are exhorted with God's help to be his sponsors to the end that he may confess Christ as Lord and Savior and enter at last into his eternal kingdom. Jesus said, whoso shall receive one such child in my name receives me. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who of thine infinite mercy and goodness has promised that thou will not only be our God, but also the God and Father of our children. We humbly beseech thee for this child, that thy spirit may be upon him, rest upon him, and dwell in him forever. Take him, we entreat thee, into thy fatherly care and protection. Guide him and sanctify him both in body and in spirit. Cause him to grow in wisdom as in stature in favor with God and men. 
abundantly enrich him with thy heavenly praise. And finally, bring him safely through the perils of childhood, delivering him from the temptations of youth, and lead him to witness a good confession and to persevere therein for the rest of his life into eternity with our Savior. O God, our Father, give unto thy servants in whom thou hast committed this blessed trust the assurance of thine unfailing providence and care. Guide them with thy counsel as they teach and train their children. Help them to lead their household into an ever-increasing knowledge of Christ and a more steadfast obedience to his will. We commend also to your fatherly care the children and families of this congregation. Help them, Father, in their homes to worship you, to honor you, and by love to serve one another. And to thy name be all glory and blessing and honor through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hey, all right. Praise the Lord. Good. Cool. Well, now, just before you head out, we... We haven't been able to see much of them because there's one thing after another that got in the way. Somebody was sick or whatever, and we just wanted it all to come into one place, and it has today, and we're really delighted. Um, would you introduce, if you don't mind, everybody in your family? So I'm Charles Wright, and this is my wife, Charity, my son, Hunter, over here, and our new son, Charlie. Yeah, so praise to God. I, I want to just say thank you, Lord, for this blessing. Let's, can I pray too? Why not? We can't have too little, right? Heavenly Father, we are delighted to see a family here with us today, everybody together. Thank you for Dennis. What a privilege it is to see uh, multiple generations coming together in the love of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray now that as a congregation, we would be a witness to the primary ministry that they have in their home, that we could be a support to them in the nursery and in the Sunday school programs and in life itself and that we would come alongside of them and be an encouragement and a prayer partner with them. Thank you so very much for your Holy Spirit's work leading us together today. We are so thankful, grateful to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's get to know them better, huh? That's, congratulations, you guys. Welcome. Such a pleasure. <laughs> that is a lot of fun. I've got a couple of announcements that uh, I'd like to share with the congregation. My plate has been really full lately. And by the way, the kids are free to head down the hallway now for Sunday school. And uh, I didn't see, there's Gabe back there, so the youth are ready to go. My plate's been super full uh, this, these last couple of weeks, and I'm sort of, I'm not sort of, I'm reaching out to the congregation for your help. Uh, there's a lot of things happening in the life of the church right now. Uh, on the up fun side, uh, Jim and Eileen Dale are celebrating their 60th anniversary next Sunday, so we'll have a little special time down the hallway next week, so be sure to be here for that. Um, then also, um, it looks like we might have a director for the preschool coming up, so we're really grateful to God for that. A few things probably to be worked out with elders and all that, but it looks promising. Still need a hope director for our food pantry. And so if you need more information about that, let us know. Presbytery is coming here in May. If you're down to Presbyterian, you go, Presbo, what? It just means that a collection of churches from Alaska, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, Northern California are going to be gathering here. And that's quite a gathering, and we need a lot of help. And so I volunteered to be the 
the chief source of phone calls, and Amy's coming alongside too, but we need volunteer coordinators, registration volunteers, food coordinator, food service workers, greeters, sound media techs, and maybe, maybe child care for one to five-year-olds if anybody's interested and we want to offer that. That's an optional piece, but we've got lots to do. It's coming up in May, and I don't want to wait till the end of April to figure it out. So if any of you are interested in being a volunteer coordinator, registration volunteer, food coordinator, food service volunteer, greeter or sound tech, media tech, let me know. And I will be glad to uh, assist you in finding out what that actually means, because I'm afraid to read the descriptions to you right now. I just want you to tell me, hey, I'm interested, and then I'll tell you what you're going to be doing. <laughs> um, not really. It's, it's when many hands make light work, and when you host a presbytery, it's a big deal. So um, I hope that you'll let me know that you want to help somehow. Now, on the pastoral care side, this is where I could really use some help. It seems like there's a bit of a snowstorm at the moment on a lot of things happening. So Marley Lindlin, who fell at home and absolutely shattered her left wrist and broke this finger on her right hand, is kind of like this away. And she's over at Marquis, over here where Leon is. And if you want to go visit her, please do so. Um, I got to see her the other day. She's in pretty good spirits. Don't know how long she'll be there or what the, the goal is to be able to get out of there, but it's, it's a bit tough with both hands tied up at the moment. Uh, David Scott, for those on the prayer chain, know that he is at Kaiser Sunnyside, and I asked Rebecca what I could share, and she said, share whatever you want. So um, basically, if you were to see David right now, he'd be on a ventilator, and he can't move anything. He can't open his eyes. He can't even look around. He's like inert, and they still are mystified as to what it actually is. It could be Guillain-Barre gone to an extreme extent, which is a paralyzing thing, and then it recedes and it gets better, or he had eaten something that really upset his stomach, so they're trying to track down maybe something happened at the, the burger joint that he ate at, and he got some kind of toxin. Nobody knows for sure what's going on. Um, it looks like it's going to be a while, so um, Rebecca's there quite a bit, and... Um, you can go see him if you want to. Yes, I see your hand in the back there. What's? Yeah. Good. Right, he's, he's, really, he's really sick. He can't even uh, look around. when he, he can't even open his eyes or look around or anything. So uh, he, basically you're looking at an inert person who can't move a muscle. And he can't even breathe on his own. Um, he's got to have the ventilator breathing for him. His chest muscles don't even work. So it's really a mystery. So pray for clarity, pray for healing. And if you'd like to stop by and say hi and uh, be there, you're welcome to do that. They won't, they won't mind that at all. Uh, Sharon Gard is still going through chemo for her cancer and also Larry Weaver's having radiation for his cancer. Leslie Kruger's husband, um, Erlen, passed away, as many of you know, and his service is on the 25th at 11 in the morning on a Saturday. And uh, just keep Leslie and the family in your prayers. Also, Tim Dale has decided on a date for Deb Dale's memorial service. It's April 22nd, and that'll be a Saturday. I don't know the time or the more details than that at this date yet. 
but remember them. I think as they get closer to that date, the, the loss of Deb uh, just escalates and it becomes uh, more real and more deeply felt. Um, so keep them in your prayers as well. So it's a, it's a busy time, uh, pastorally speaking, and I wouldn't turn away any volunteers or people that want to, cards, letters, phone calls, visits, it's all there for us. And I think together as a congregation, it, it can really help if uh, you feel called by God to jump in. I'd, like, I'd rather them say, I, I can't stand another visitor than I'm not getting any. So um, I just put that out to your care and keeping and prayer. At least pray for them. Lots going on. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, 12 to 16. 12 to 16. Um, you'd think that this is such a short stretch. I mean, it's not that many verses, but weirdly enough, I found myself really taking more time than usual to figure out what in the world Paul was talking about. Have you ever run across those passages that at first glance you think, how hard can this be? Maybe I should pick a longer stretch of Scripture. And then you look more deeply at it and you realize, oh my goodness, I need to spend more time just on that. And that's what we've done here today is limited it to 12 to 16 because this is, he introduces several new elements that he will bring up over and over and over again in his book, the book of Romans, to the letter that he wrote to that church. And we need to understand critical key pieces or we're not going to understand the remainder of the book. So this is a real important part of the text today. I'd like to read for you the word of the Lord, but I'd like to pray first. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask now that your Holy Spirit bring wisdom and understanding. And more so, Lord God, we pray that it applies Help us not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. And thank you, God, again for the grace that we have through Jesus Christ. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what Paul wrote. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the, requirement of, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Maybe you're smarter than I am, but if you, that sounded a little muddled in the middle, you're, I was right there with you earlier this week, and I want to unpack it for all of us this morning. First of all, when I was thinking about the message today, I was thinking about the law and all that kind of stuff. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit led me to look up laws in our world that are rather strange, that you wouldn't know existed unless they told you. For example, I've got my top 10 favorites that I'm going to share with you this morning. You cannot use or bring codeine to Japan. Who knew? No gum chewing in Singapore. You'll get fined for it. No riding a cow in Scotland if you're drunk. That one goes, as you can imagine, way back. 
No wearing camouflage clothing of any sort in Barbados. France doesn't let men wear loose-fitting swimsuits in public. Have you ever wondered why those French guys wear Speedos and they really shouldn't? <laughs> Don't step on Thailand's money. You're stepping on the king's face. Not good. This is the weirdest one of all. Don't honk your horn in New York. It's illegal to honk your horn in New York. I have to say, go figure. That's just, uh, that's totally unknown. You cannot build sand castles on the beaches in Spain. No Winnie the Pooh t-shirts in Poland. Winnie the Pooh doesn't wear pants. If you die in Charbonneau, France, you must have bought your burial plot ahead of time. The mayor famously announced, offenders will be severely prosecuted. <laughs> I'm telling you, those are real. I'm not joking. Those aren't made up stuff. Now, the reason I start the sermon with those is because, for one thing, we are not aware of those laws until just now. And second of all, our conscience wouldn't bother us along those lines. If I was building a sandcastle on the beaches in Spain, I would be having a happy old time until somebody theoretically would come up and fine me for making a castle on the beach, and I'd kind of wonder why. My conscience didn't even begin to tell me it was wrong. There are things out there that we just would never know. The difference between what Paul is writing about and what we would understand in the top ten there is that everybody has a conscience Jew and Gentile alike, the Jews are privileged to have the law of God specifically given to them, and there are two distinct groups of people. So there's laws that everybody around the world knows, and they're inherent in their conscience, if they have a good conscience, and then there are laws that are written down and more objective, like the Ten Commandments and that sort of thing, and we'll look at this more deeply in a minute. So in your outlines, you'll see that I'm kind of breaking it down into the new elements. The first new element is the law. Paul hasn't talked about the law until now. It's the first time he introduces it. It's an important word because he uses the word law 70 times in the book of Romans alone. And, we, and because he's introducing it, he uses the word seven times, no, 11 times in just these verses. Two are negative, they are without the law, and the rest are positive with the law. So it's a, it's a very critical word that we've got to wrap our heads and hearts around in order to understand what Paul means. In verse 12 he says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Paul is using Jewish terminology to describe two basic groups of people. One is Gentile and one is Jew. Apart from the law is a Jewish description of the Gentile world. They weren't there on Mount, they're not the people of Mount Sinai that God made the covenant with, the Mosaic covenant with them. So they're the without the law crowd. The under the law or in the sphere or encompassed by the law or within the law, that group are the Jews. So first of all, now we know who's who. We know that he's talking about the Gentiles and the Jews. And all along the way, Paul has been making the point that the Jewish community has no advantage over the Gentile community on Judgment Day, apart from God's grace, right? 
They might have special revelation, they might be the chosen people, but they're not de facto ahead of the Gentile world. But they thought they were, and they kind of looked down their nose at the wider Gentile population. Now, with the Jewish Christian community coming back into Rome and the Gentile Christian community still remaining there, they'd recombined after having the Jews have been exiled by Caesar and were allowed to come back. Now they're this one group in Christ, but they're having some difficulties uniting. And so a lot of what Paul does at the beginning of his letter is to point out that neither party has the advantage over the other before God. There are differences. They're all accountable to God, though, and God judges fairly without any prejudice or anything like that. So here we're going to find another place where Paul is creating a level playing field, trying to bring those two parties together, recognizing that they're all one in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel that brings them together. So let's look at this more closely. What is the law? Paul, there are about 700, no, 613 laws. Someone counted them. I can't imagine but they went through the scriptures, they looked at all the laws that God had given them. There's ritual laws, cultural laws, you know, things like this. There's ethical laws. And there's about 613 of them. That's not what Paul means when he talks about the law. 90% of all references in Romans to the law are coming out of the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai, where the people, after leaving Egypt, got the Ten Commandments. I think we would all know the Ten Commandments in Moses. But there was more to it than that. Exodus 19 to 24 is the inclusion of what Paul is thinking of, and it includes all kinds of extra details, not just the Ten Commandments. It includes Hebrew servants, personal injury, property rules and regulations, and the three festivals a year that they're to celebrate, and other material too. And when Paul says the law, He's thinking about this covenant that God made with his people on Mount Sinai. And it was a conditional covenant, right? If you do this, you'll be blessed. If you don't do this, you won't be blessed. You'll find punishment as a consequence for sin. God will not bless sin. So it was a conditional peace. And it's Jesus who fulfilled that covenant when he gave us the new covenant that we celebrate when we do communion, celebrate communion together, right? So this is a bit of a backdrop to that. And so Paul, when he talks about the law again, he's just talking about that piece of it in the Old Testament. Now, sometimes he talks about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, sometimes less than 10%, or maybe the whole Old Testament, but again, it's not that often, or some kind of rule or principle at work. But again, context will tell us. I know that's a lot of details, but when Paul introduces a new word like this, for the very first time, and he uses it so often, we need to know what he meant and where he got it. So if you want to review this week on your own, Exodus 19 to 24, I recommend it because this is what Paul has in mind so much as we go on through the book. The second thing he introduces is conscience, the conscience. That's the first time we've heard of it in the book of Romans. Not the first time in Scripture, but the first time he's using it in this letter. And here's what he says. Now, the NIV puts a parenthesis around it because it's meant to think that it's kind of a, an aside over here. You don't need the parentheses, though. It really does hold together. But here's what Paul wrote. Indeed, when Gentiles, the people without the law, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now, are you confused? That's where it gets tricky. 
Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bear witness in their thoughts now, accusing now, even defending them. This is where I probably labored the most, trying to figure out what it was that Paul was trying to convey. And I think they probably understood it, but for us, we've got to get back into what they were thinking and the times that they were in as well. What Paul is saying here is that everybody has a conscience that God placed into their minds. Conscience just means uh, you're conscious, you're aware of. It's not always very specific, is it? You sometimes know it's just wrong. You know it's wrong. And sometimes it's wrong for one person and not wrong for another person, but then everybody's accountable to God for this, and we'll look at that in a minute. Conscience is a general urge or guide or instruction, sometimes not with a lot of clarity, but down inside you know this is good or this isn't good. And that's what Paul says all Gentiles have. And the Jews would have it also. But they also have the specificity of the law, and that's what makes it different. Since God gives everybody a good conscience in the beginning, a conscience alert to right and wrong, then when we do the good thing, what Paul, and this is, the, this is where it makes sense and where it's hard to figure out at first, at least it was for me. When your conscience leads you to do the right thing, you're actually working in concert or in agreement with the law. You may not know the law, but your conscience, when you respond to it, and it's a good conscience, you're actually doing the law, even if you couldn't say it was the law you were doing. So in other words, is everybody accountable to God for right and wrong? Yes. Do you need the law to be accountable to God? Well, your conscience alone will convict you before God of sin. You knew better. You didn't. You broke the law. It's all tied to that. So even though you don't know the law, you still have a conscience that if you follow it, you will generally understand that you're fulfilling the law, or at least God would see it that way. And that's what Paul is trying to say. And they found some research, in research that there are seven common conscience-laden laws in the human heart that are universally found in every culture. And I was very curious to find out what those were, and I've got them here for you this morning. Seven common traits in every culture that come from the human conscience. Here they are. One, love your family. That's universal. Help your group, your, your clan, your, your community, your family, whatever you want to call it. Help your group. Return favors. Be brave. Defer to authority. Be fair. And respect others' property. There's no culture on the planet that has the opposite on any of those seven. Let's look at the opposite. What would it be? Don't love your family, just hate them. Don't help anybody, especially your own group. Never return a favor. Be a wimp, be a wuss, be a chicken. Don't be brave. Challenge authority on every level. It's a good thing. We want the entire society to rebel against authority and give them all kinds of trouble. That would be fun, wouldn't it? And then be fair. No, let's be dishonest, lie and cheat and steal. That'd be much more fun. And then also, let's not respect anybody's property. If you have a car and I like it, I'm going to take it. And everybody applauds and is happy for me. Can you imagine any society that would be the flip of those seven good things? It doesn't exist. Where does that come from? 
Paul would say, it comes from God who innately put in every human being a conscience to know, generally speaking, this is good and this isn't. And that's what Paul says they're accountable to God for. And when they do the good thing, they're actually carrying out the law. The law is really summed up in two ways, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you'll do what's in their best interest. You'll do what's good for them, as God would declare it to be good. When you carry out the conscience in a good way, and it's in line with those two things, then you are keeping the law, even if you've never received it. This is what Paul's point is. It's a little convoluted, but it's there, and it's a good one. So then he says this about the conscience. They are a law for themselves. Now, that, that might raise some interesting thoughts, but I tell you what it's not. They are not a law unto themselves. That is not what Paul says. They are not to make up their own rules and to come up with their own truths and to come up with what their own definitions of love are or any of the other things that we see in our own society today, right? People are just making stuff up out of their own imaginations. This is not what it is. The law, the conscience is not from them. It's from God. So they're not a law unto themselves and they're not a law for themselves. The law is placed inside of them for them to follow. And that's what God did. The result is that the Gentile conscience, mine and yours, if you're not Jewish, mine and yours, our conscience, defends us sometimes. I know I did the right thing. And sometimes condemns us or critiques us. Man, I, I wish I shouldn't do that. In fact, most of the references to conscience in Greek literature are all negative. Negative. You feel guilty afterwards, right? They knew that, generally. It didn't feel right. I wished I would have, or I wished, you know, I, I wouldn't have. That's what the conscience does worldwide. And Paul's noting that. So the Jew or the Gentile, they're both accountable to God. The Jews have clarity of the written law. The Gentiles have a conscience. Neither one of them has an advantage because on Judgment Day, everybody's judged by their works. The only way you can be forgiven is through God's grace through faith. And we know that that's rooted in Jesus Christ. And so no one can stand before the Lord God Almighty and say, I'm Jewish, I'm in. And nobody can stand before God and say, I'm not Jewish, I'm in. It's all the same. We're all sinners in need of grace. So I thought this morning it'd be good to check our conscience, because I mentioned good conscience, but the Bible mentions other sorts of conscience how it's been affected. First of all, let's look at a good conscience. Acts 23.1 is an example. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish high supreme court, you could say, in Israel. And he said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. He does not feel guilty for his missional work. He doesn't feel guilty for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He feels guiltless. In fact, he feels right with God. And he says, my conscience doesn't bother me. I have a good conscience. It's clear. And that's a good thing that we all want to have without the guilt feelings associated with what we've done or not done. Somebody once said that a good conscience makes a soft pillow. Go to bed at night, you can sleep. As opposed to spin, spin, toss, toss, anxiety, 
confession over and over, wished I could have, wished I hadn't, you know, whatever. A good conscience is what we all want, a good conscience. Then the second thing that's mentioned in the Bible is a weak conscience. And you could say the opposite of that would be a strong conscience, right? What's a weak conscience? Well, it's not a conscience that needs to improve. It's a conscience that's more sensitive to some things that, again, I think God gave to them. For example, when we were in Germany at the Liebenzell Mission with the Lutheran group there, they wouldn't play cards. It bothered their conscience. I can't find anything in Scripture exactly that would say you can't play cards. We love to play Go Fish and some other games. We found out that they didn't do that. In that sense, they had a weak or sensitive conscience, and we were strong. It didn't bother us. That didn't mean we're better. What Paul would write in Corinthians is, look, if your conscience is weak and something bothers you, you don't dance, you don't play cards, you don't drink alcohol, whatever it is, and you feel strongly about that, don't make laws for everybody else to follow just because you have that sensitivity. You're accountable to God for it. You don't do it, but you don't make rules for everybody else to have to do that too, right? If you're a strong conscience, if I have a beer after dinner, doesn't bother me, or if I want to play cards or I want to go dancing, then fine, but don't look down your nose at somebody and critique or judge them because their conscience bothers them. And in fact, when you're in their company, what's the general rule of thumb? If it doesn't bother you but it bothers them, what's your response? You're going to love them, right? You're going to pull back for their sake. But you don't judge them for it. You see, this is how families get along. We're all a little bit different, but we want to honor God above all things. And so he mentions this week. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians now. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. In other words, if you don't care that it bothers them and you go ahead and eat that, they're troubled by that. There's something that stirs in a wrong and an unhealthy way inside of them. And so again, what's the general rule of thumb? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If something bothers them, then when you're in their context, in their presence, then honor them. Set your freedom aside and let them enjoy the day. And then on your own, you can do what your conscience will lead you to do in those regards. But there are some differences. We need to appreciate those. Not to critique anybody, because everybody's accountable to God on those levels, right? Then there's a corrupted conscience. I think, personally, this is the most common problem in the world since Genesis chapter 3. There's sin in our lives. Total depravity is the word we use. Everything we do that's good is somewhat twisted for selfish interests. That's what's meant by that, and so, or worse. And so there's a corrupted conscience that the Bible mentions, and it's in Titus, and it says this, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. And I think this is a really important point, that our conscience can be corrupted also by the world around us, by the things we take in, news feeds, attitudes, family dynamics. I've seen it over and over again. Uh, you marry somebody that's not a Christian and pretty soon you've adopted their attitudes and their beliefs and their lifestyles. There's a corruption that can so easily take place. Remember how the book of Psalms starts? 
Don't stand, don't walk, don't sit in the seat of mockers. In other words, you'll become just like them if you hang out long enough. And what does Paul say when we get to Romans 12? Renew your mind. Renew your mind. In other words, all of our minds can be corrupted by the world we live in and our own nature to sin. We've got to keep track of that. And this is also, I think, where things go badly in some churches or in personal Christian lives. When your conscience conflicts with what you read in Scripture, which one wins? If the truth of God's Word is over here and you don't like what it says or you don't like the ramifications and your conscience, corrupted by the world, over here says, I don't like that. Which one comes out on top? Is God's Word corrupted or are our thoughts corrupted? To me, if you put conscience ahead of what you're reading and you discard or diminish or, or suppress the truth, then you're going to go down a slope that has no bottom. The minute the Word of God is discounted, that's where the trouble starts. That's where all the errors creep in. That's where churches fail. That's where leaders fail. That's where, as individual Christians, we can fail. The Bible is the Word of God, and our conscience is not as reliable. I want to have a good conscience, but I know I live in the world, and until I get to heaven, I'm going to have some corruption in my mind that I need to con continually renew in the Word of God. That's the basis for a good conscience. Steerage, guidance, truth. And that's what we want to hang on to. Then the worst situation of all is a seared conscience. Burned. There's no good left in it. This is the opposite of a good conscience. They've neglected the truth for so long, they've suppressed the truth for so long, that now they're immune to it. And this is what First Timothy Paul writes to Timothy and says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They're out there. How many cults have been begun by those who have a seared conscience? I'm not picking on one of them particularly, but Joseph Smith, back in the 1800s, do you know what he said about hell? If I go to hell, we'll turn hell into heaven. Really? There's lots of things that are said, and I think a seared conscience can say anything. How do we know, how do we test the spirits to see if they're of God? How do we know that our conscience is on the right track. You go back to the manual of operations, I call it. We've all got the same manual. Open it up and let it talk to you. Don't go to a Bible study or a personal study. Read it, study it. I know the Greek. I know this. I know that. You know, I know where it sits. I can even quote chapter and verse. But unless you apply it, it's dead to you. Information is not what it's all about. You need that, but it should find an application. And what I'm talking about here with the conscience is apply it to your own conscience. 
Renew your own mind. Let it speak to you and take it to heart. I don't like some of the stuff I read sometimes. Have you ever struggled with a passage personally? Now, if you're sinless, the answer would be never. If you've ever sinned, then you have wrestled with the truth. It's all there. So what do we do when we sin? We repent. We confess. We repent. We turn back. We keep our eyes on Jesus, and we let the Word of God renew our minds and let the church speak, too, into our lives. When there's no conscience left, really, the ultimate end of that is just destruction and destroying things around them. J.I. Packer wrote this in his book, Rediscovering Holiness. He says, An educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do, forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility, makes us feel guilt, shame, and fear of the future retribution that it tells us we deserve. When we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints, Satan's strategy is to corrupt, desensitize, and if possible, kill our consciences. The relativism, materialism, narcissism, secularism, and hedonism of today's Western world help him mightily toward his goal. His task is made yet simpler by the way in which the world's moral weaknesses have been taken into the contemporary church. Not our church. Not that way where it's all just sold out and it's like what's happening now in the world is our morality. A fellow the other day said that, um, well, there's just all kinds of things preached and taught out there in the world. And I'm not even going to start. I've heard a lot of it myself. You've got to go back to the manual. What does the Bible say? Otherwise, people's consciences can be corrupt. When they say something, you've got to think, what is God's perspective on this? I could be wrong. And make sure that we're walking in step with the Holy Spirit, informed by the word of truth. This will keep us in a good conscience. And the world needs that. I need that personally. I feel good when I go to bed at night with a good conscience, don't you? It's healthy, it's good, it's right. So let's live into it. Let's ask ourselves how our own conscience is doing. Ask ourselves, why aren't I reading my Bible more often? Why don't I at least read a little bit of it every day? Why aren't, why aren't I more engaged? Am I renewing my mind? I can't do that for you. I think I figured out what you get 34 hours worth of sermons typically in a year or something like that. That's not enough to offset the innumerable number of hours on media, social media, TV, conversations, workplaces, human resources, all the other voices that are speaking into our lives. You've got to renew that little noggin up there to keep our conscience good. It's not on autopilot. We have to pray and keep it clean and keep it right with God. So, keeping a good conscience doesn't happen by accident. First of all, it's essential that we persist in faith in Jesus Christ and meditate on God's Word. I love to study what the world's doing. I think that's great. I want to know the world I'm living in, the society I'm living in, trends. I do that. I look at that. But ultimately, that is not going to inform my ethics. The Bible does. And I want to honor God with that. Am I perfect? No. Are you? No. But we need to keep our brains going. And the Word of God will do that for us. 
Hebrews 10:22. Let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Isn't that something? And our bodies washed with pure water. This is our aim then don't merely listen to the scriptures, don't merely listen to a sermon, don't merely take it for granted in a podcast or something else that you're enjoying. Don't take it for granted. Do what God tells you to do. Look at James. James has got this so clearly put. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And let's go on. But the man who looks intently into the law, perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it He'll be blessed in what he does. My translation of this for myself personally is, don't audit the course. Do it right. When I took an anatomy and physiology course for the second time in uh, school, I was a biology major for three years before I went into the nursing program, and I took an anatomy and physiology course in my biology years, and when I got into the nursing program, I thought, man, I better brush up on all those muscles and bones and nerves and everything else. So I audited the class. Well, when I took it the first time for a grade, I did all the work, read all the material, worked really hard, and, and it was tiring and exhausting, but I got it done and I got good marks. When I audited the course, I found myself sleeping in class. I mean, I was tired, my head would hit the desk. How could I fall asleep in class? Because it didn't really matter. I was going to get through the course whether I slept through every class or not. And that's what James is saying, don't just read it and get you know, sleepy and forget what you read and, and ignore it. Think about, what do I do with this? Jenny is really good in our Bible study. She says, what's my take home? That's her way of saying, what am I supposed to do with this? And that is what James says, and that's what Paul says. What are you going to do with it? If we just take it in and don't do anything with it, we have not arrived at the responsibility we have. Let's act on, on what we know. Now, the reason that's so important is because of the misunderstanding that the Jews had at the time. So that's the, the next point, the third one, the misunderstanding. This is what Paul knows lies behind what he's writing. Why is he saying all this? Because the Jews have a misunderstanding going on, and Paul needs to correct it. And here is what he's saying. The Jews at the time thought that if they really intently listened to the scriptures being read, if they really studied it and just got in there and looked at all the Hebrew words and studied it in context and came away with this vast amount of memorization, just being intentional about it made them right with God. We've got the law. We're people of the law. I've read the law, I've listened intently to the law, therefore I am right with God. They didn't emphasize doing it. Just knowing it and really getting into it was what they thought made them right with God. 
And Paul says, that doesn't cut it. And here's, here's, let's look at what he writes. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. You see what I mean? There's the background for that little bit. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, when you think about the fact that if a Gentile without the law follows a good conscience and they don't know it, but they're actually fulfilling the law by doing the right thing, they're actually doing better than a Jew who knows the law and doesn't do it. Now, if that was a muddled way of going about it, I'm sorry, but that's about the best I can get out of it. You can go, this is a tape, this is online, by the way, and it's saved. You can go back to the archive and say, what did he just say? Because I probably couldn't say it twice, right? Um, but basically, he's saying you're all in the same boat. You should all be doing this. A Gentile might be doing better than a Jew does, even though the Jew's got more specific details. A Gentile could possibly be doing better than that in their behavior. And he's saying you're all accountable to God. Let's fix this problem is what his point is. So for us, here's some questions that came to me. Are you intently listening to sermons and studying your Bible? I hope so. Is your con- if your conscience conflicts with Scripture, does Scripture prevail? That's the harder question. Is your life an audit course full of knowledge but little or no action? And are you doing what God's Word says you should be doing? Going, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the great commission, right? Great commandment, love God, love neighbor. How am I doing? Am I applying those very things? And if not, then what do we do as Christians, as believers in Christ? Well, we don't duck and cover and hide and pretend. We just go right to God with all honesty and say, I am not there yet. Lord, forgive me for my sins. I confess I failed. I thank you, though, for your grace to me in Jesus Christ who died for the sake of all my sins that on judgment day I will be tried by God for my works, but there will be no bad works left. Only the good that is made right by God remains. And so we live humbly and gratefully, don't we? So the misunderstanding is going to seminary doesn't give you a better room in heaven. Being a pastor doesn't give me into a better condition with God than if I wasn't. Studying the word and memorizing the whole thing won't put me in a better place with God unless I'm willing to apply it and I'm resting in the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's so important. Now what about the outcome, the so what? What's the outcome? All who sin, verse 12, apart from the law will also perish, and all who sin under the law will be judged. There isn't a different outcome for either one, perish or judged. It both means condemned. They're lost. They aren't saved. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. You're all judged that way. The law is perfectly holy, but God's people never are, right? Not apart from the Holy Spirit and the grace of God in Christ, who declares us righteous. Here's what Paul wrote in Romans. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, the Jewish people, the, the people who received it on the Mount Sinai, the Hebrew people, that so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one can be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscience, conscious of sin. 
in a specific, clear way. They knew. Nobody can be perfect. Who is the only perfect person who ever fulfilled all the law? Jesus. Never sinned. And the law for us was to put us on our knees looking for a Savior, otherwise we were lost. And they waited in faith. Jesus came. We know Christ today. It's all rooted in the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This is all good news. Best, of, best outcome of the law is that it'll lead everyone to faith in Christ. Look at Galatians 3.24. So the law was put in charge. Why was the law given to a sinful people? Well, to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by what? Faith. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anybody could boast, Ephesians says. This is, again, good news. So the law isn't a grinding taskmaster that we've got to march to, and we've got to you know, work hard and drum up our efforts, and we've got to compare ourselves to others, and we've got to really be nitpicky with each other, and we've got to really be caustic and damaging to one another. We rub it in. We don't rub it out. You sin. Wow. And the law is not meant to do that. The law hits everybody. And when everybody understands they're a sinner, then what can we do? I need, I need help. Jesus isn't for, well, I know they need it. They're a sinner. They're, they're probably an addict or they're really lost or they're confused or they're damaged goods. But I'm kind of a good person and, and I don't need that. I remember watching a, a video of a man who was Jewish. He was a secular Jew and he said all he had to do was go to the rabbi once a year and he can get all his sins forgiven for a year. How would you like that deal? Go to synagogue once a year, the rabbi does his, whatever it is, and then you're good for 365 days. But then you better get back a year later. That's what he thought. And he didn't even know what sin really was. And he didn't think he was a sinner until a Christian came along and said to him, have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? And he's a teenager at the time. And it dawned on him, uh, hmm. And he said, well, Jesus said that's not appropriate. That's a sin to lust like that. Um, in a, in a sort of a carnal way. And so he, it dawned on him, and it troubled him for the longest time, and he finally became a, a believer in Jesus Christ. He just didn't know. Some people think they're good, and I like to use, I was telling the Bible study on Saturday an illustration. I think this is a good one for people who think they're good. I'll give you a picture that you can paint. You see that arch there? It's got a peak at the top. Let's just Use that as an analogy. You can use a tree outside or a tall building or a telephone pole or whatever is convenient. And at the top is perfection, perfect holiness. There's not one thing wrong with them. They're perfect. Where, where, who do you think would be near the top or at the top, and who do you think would be at the bottom? And who, who would you put at the bottom of the arch? Hitler, maybe, or Stalin, or some horrible criminal, or a murderer. Yeah, they're, they're down there somewhere. Where would you put Mother Teresa or you, yourself or whatever? And it's never, is it ever at the very pinnacle top, is it? So then you can get them to realize that they're not perfectly good as they thought they were. So then if there's a gap between where they think they are and where perfect goodness is, they fall short of the glory of God, don't they? And how can that gap be made up? Forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's a picture. And if you want to keep that in mind, I think in today's world, that's not a bad illustration. 
considering how most people see themselves at the moment, at least many around the world. Paul put some real honest words in the book of Romans about himself. And, I, and some people say, well, this is before he was a believer in Christ. I don't think so. I think it's Paul being a real person, filled with the Holy Spirit, in love with Jesus, truth of his word. He's an apostle sent by Christ to share the witness of the gospel to the Gentile world. And yet he's, he's, he's well, not and yet, he's very transparent and honest. And when I read Romans 7, I identified with it. See if you identify with it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, his conscience, his knowledge, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! He'd love to be free of it, but he struggles with sin. Is Paul a sinner? Only Jesus was sinless. And Paul, I think, is being honest. But then what does Paul go back to? He doesn't brag about the good he does. He goes back with humility to the grace of God to him and Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. He is wretched. He feels terrible about it. He wishes he didn't sin. What an awful thing. He struggles. Okay, great. Then where do I take this mess? Good words. <laughs> Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. <laughs> Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Paul's being really honest. Can you identify with what he's saying? I love Jesus. I love the word, but I'm not perfect. Are you? then what do we do with it? I think I am so grateful on a regular basis for God's grace. And I pray for family members and friends that don't know that wonderful love of God in their hearts yet. It's a great gift from God that we have this beautiful relationship with the Lord forever. And it's by the gift of God to us in Jesus Christ that we're set free. Jesus said to a crowd once, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Are you free? And even if we sin and our conscience bothers us and we know that we are not loving our neighbor and we're not loving God, we know what to do. We know that we can confess it. We can come before God's throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. We know that it's because of Jesus that we have a right relationship with God. We are not lost. We are not condemned. We're not kicked out. We're not unadopted. We are children in God's house, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And I just wanted to say one last word. I'm thankful for grace. How about you? It's a wonderful gift we have. And the world around us doesn't enjoy it yet. And I pray that all of us can find some means of communicating God's love and the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins to help people realize they're a sinner, but we're not talking about... In fact, when I do Erlen Kruger's memorial service, one of the things I think I'm already going to bring up, Christianity is not a better set of rules and regulations. 
I think the world imagines that we just think we've got a better set of rules. You should behave like we do. We do it better at First Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You know what I mean? That, I think, is the world's mindset of karma. You get what you deserve. Well, we, we get it better than you do. And instead, I want people to realize we're all sinners in need of grace. And Paul said, what a wretched man I am. Oh, I'd love to be free of all this stuff. But I thank God, he says, for his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's exciting. The rubber meets the road. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Father, for the mercy that you've shown us. That when Christ died on the cross, Lord God, he willingly and purposefully and very lovingly took the curse upon himself to set us free from condemnation. We know when we read Romans, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We know that we're saved by faith from first to last. We know that grace is grace, and any works added to that is no longer grace. It's a gift that we've received from you. And Lord, we are eternally grateful, thankful for our salvation, thankful for Paul's letter to the Romans that brings these issues up. Lord, may our conscience be a good conscience. And Lord, when we struggle with a corrupted conscience, when we read your word, we pray, Lord, that your word will prevail, that the word will transform our minds, and we will not seek to transform your word or ignore it or suppress it. Lord, may your Holy Spirit continue to do its great work in our lives. We're humble, grateful, and filled with your love. And we're grateful that we can share this goodness with others. We can share the wonderful saving grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us the timing, give us the words, give us the opportunities. And then, Lord God, help us to be bold enough, sensitive enough, with gentleness and respect, to share that others too can receive and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit do that great work in them. Bring them to salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Let the word of Christ, my Savior, dwell in me today. May his goodness be reflected in all I do and say. Let the wisdom of my Father be the light upon my way. May his spirit always guide me.
join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our sinners. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. And all of God's people could say, Amen. Now, just one last closing thought. If anybody here this morning is still uncertain about your relationship with the Lord, you know, your conscience is bothering you, you just don't feel settled, it's, it's something's bugging you, feel free to talk to me. I would love to visit with you and pray with you. I think we can sort this out. The Holy Spirit's at work. The truth of God is there. Sun sets you free. You're free indeed. I want you to experience that. God bless you. Come on down to the fellowship hall. Enjoy each other's company. Have fun. Have a great week. God bless you.